I know I speak for you in expressing appreciation for the beautiful music of this beautiful traditional song which speaks to us so, so deeply. The title I've given this sermon is Life is What Happens, dot, dot, dot. Life is what happens when you've made other plans. John Lennon said something like that in a, in a song in 1980. The Reader's Digest had a version of that quotation in 1957. I didn't even know that John Lennon read the Reader's Digest. But all of us understand what that feeling is like. Who hasn't felt that? You're an employee. You have your work lined up for the day. You know what you need to do. And then the boss comes in and tells you he wants you to do something different. Or you're the boss. And you got your work planned for the day. And then the employee, your employees come in with all sorts of questions that you think they should have been able to handle on their own. Life is what happens when you made other plans. You're, you're a parent. You have the household day plan. Maybe you've even made a list on the refrigerator. Uh, that's the plan you made. But then the kids come in and they have a totally different agenda. Or you're the kids. And you know what you want to do and what would make for a good day for you. And the parents say, mm, I think we need to do something else instead. Life is what happens when we made other plans Norman Cousins was uh, editor of the Saturday Review for a long time. He said, my time as editor can be described in these words, I was presiding over interruptions. <laughs> maybe some of you, maybe you remember the, what was it, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and, and maybe some of you read the books or you went to the, to the seminars and and, and you remember the, 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 the window, the four-paned window, the, quad, the quadrant, and, and one was um, important but not urgent, and one was urgent but not important, and one was not urgent. Yeah, they're all, four, yeah, all, all those possible uh, com, uh, combinations of those words. And you remember how Stephen Covey was always telling you, spend all the time you could in what was, was important but not urgent, but everybody around you wanted you to spend time in the things that were neither urgent nor important. Excuse me, were urgent but not important. Life is what happens when you, when you, when you made other plans. Uh, Mark does not tell us what Jesus had put on his to-do list for this day. Uh, but he was, whatever it was he was doing, he was interrupted by a visit, an urgent visit, from a man named Jairus. Now, I've, I've never really felt comfortable pronouncing the name Jairus. That doesn't sound right to me, but the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible says that's how you're supposed to say it. So for the next few minutes, Jairus, it's going to be. He was a leader of the synagogue. That means he was prominent in the community. If he hadn't been respected by the community, he never would have been made leader of the synagogue. And since he had that office, others certainly paid attention to him. But even though he had a position in the community and was well respected, when he went and sought out Jesus, he fell at the master's feet. It was the humility that comes from desperation It interrupted Jesus' day, but Jesus went off with him. And then 
In the middle of dealing with this interruption, there's another interruption to the interruption. As he stops cold, there's this huge mass of people walking along the road. We can imagine that, the crowd pressing on him, Mark says. And, and he stops and he says, who touched me? Now, the disciples would have had at least three questions that we can identify here in the text. The first is, is, is explicitly stated uh, when, when he says, who touched me? They want to say, there are all these people around. Why do you say that? When our daughter Emily was a senior at Warner Robins High School, the annual grudge match football game with Northside came down to fourth and goal at the one-yard line in the last minute of the fourth quarter. If we scored, we won. The coach called the play, they sent it in, the ball was snapped, and 22 teenage boys threw themselves at each other. What would it have been like if the right guard had stood up after that and said, who touched me? <laughs> By the way, we, we won. That's, that's the, the first question that, that the disciples had. How can you say who touched me when there are people all around you? The, the second question would have been, why, why are you doing this kind of question? Hey, we're on the way to do something good. Don't, don't let this get in the way of, what, of the good thing that we're sure you're going to do. And, and let's, let me also point out, that we're going to do something good for somebody who's important. Now, you're getting a lot of pushback from the religious establishment, and, and here's a chance for you to do something that will ingratiate you to, to the leaders of the synagogue. Why are you stopping? And that question is made more pointed by when the woman does come forward. She has tried to shrink back uh, unnoticed into the crowd, but when Jesus stops and looks all around, it doesn't say that Jesus knew immediately, oh, well, that's so-and-so. He was looking around, looking to see who it was, and she knew that she had been found out. She came forward, and when they saw her, they realized this was the woman. She had been sick for 12 years. The type of, her type of illness had made her ritually unclean, which meant that she was disqualified from polite society for all those years. The same number of years, one might point out, as the as the daughter of Jairus had been alive, but that's sort of a tangent you can get off on. And they looked and they said, this woman, she doesn't, she doesn't count for anything. This, this man over here, he's got a, a wonderful, important thing you, he wants you to do. Why are you taking time away from that to, to tend to her? I, I read this week, I don't know if it's true, it wasn't in the internet, so it might not be true. Uh, I, I, re I read this week that when the Titanic sank, one major newspaper in its first account of that tragedy spent most of the words in the, in the story talking about the death of that multi-millionaire John Jacob Astor. And only at the tail end of the story did it casually mention that, what, 1,800 others had perished in the same night. There's always the temptation to pay more attention to certain people than, than to others. So how does Jesus react? Interruption after interruption, how does he react? Seemingly, he reacts with great calm. 
when I, when I first put this, this next sentence down in my notes, I said, he has time for both. And I said, that's, just, that's misleading. And I, and I erased, he has time for both. And, he, and I put down, he takes time for both. He took time for both of them. The woman's disease is gone. If, if that's the only thing that were important, that would already be taken care of. But she isn't really healed in body and in spirit until she comes face to face with Jesus. Now, she didn't have the right ideas and the right understanding about healing. If you want to get on a tangent about this story, and there are a bunch of them you can do because it's such a rich passage, you can, you can look at the, the ancient ideas of healing and, and how this reflects a, stupor, a superstition that if I just touch his garment, that's the only time we have it in the, in the gospel. This wasn't Jesus' preferred method of healing, as Julia has talked about in the children's sermon. But, but he didn't scorn her because she had the wrong idea. Every once in a while I hear people talk about, well, Jesus won't help you if you don't have the right beliefs about him. I, I don't think that makes sense. William Lane, a, a New Testament scholar, writes about this and says that her real healing came not from the touch of her hand, but from the grasp of her faith. Don't, don't you love that? Not from the touch of her hand, but from the grasp of her faith. Meanwhile, what's Jairus doing? Is he standing to the side, patiently waiting? I doubt it. I don't know if he was, if he was uh, succumbed to the temptation to believe he was more important than this other woman. But even if, even if he did, if, even if that wasn't bothering him, just the fact that he thought he had the answer on the way and, he was, and it was being interrupted and stopped would have made him extremely impatient to say the least. In fact, at the very moment that her healing is announced, everything in his life seems to have been lost because his servants come to him and say, teacher, master, your, your, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any further? But Jesus, hearing, hearing that, turns to him and says, do not fear, but believe. Do not fear, but believe. Last summer, when I was doing my little six-month uh, stint trying to help out the, the staff here at the church, I had the privilege of preaching uh, when, at the time when the, when the pandemic was really going downhill and getting worse all the time. I remember that by the, between the time I pre-recorded the sermon and the time I actually preached it, I had to increase the number of deaths in the pandemic by some significant number. It was going so fast. And... And it was a time when we were beginning, we were really worried about it. And all over Macon, there were signs appearing in people's yards across with accompanied by these words, faith over fear. And in that sermon, I, I tried to talk about the relationship of, of fear and faith. And, and I said, having faith doesn't mean you don't feel fear. Faith does not blow fear out the window. We are not meant not to have fear, but rather faith gives us the way that we can deal with our fear. Do not fear, but believe, Jesus said. And Edward Schweitzer, writing about this passage, says that 
at this point, the word of Jesus confers the very thing it requires. When Jesus wanted him to have faith, he conferred it by his very word. And so Jairus goes with Jesus, returning to his house. They, they get to the house, and there's this big hubbub and commotion going on. The professional mourners are doing their work. Here's another tangent. If you want to, to research ancient Near Eastern burial customs, even the poorest in Israel were, were required to have at least two flute players uh, at the point of death, uh, and preferably also to have one woman act as professional mourners. And it was their job to give vent to the, to the very real grief. But Jesus has to get rid of them and go in. And they laugh at Jesus. No doubt they laughed at Jairus too for believing that something like this could happen. But in a few moments, at the word of Jesus, the little girl stands up and is healed and is restored to life. Here are two interruptions. Here are two stories of power. Here are two times that Jesus' words of grace are matched by his deeds of power. We read these, they sink into our heart, and we say, thanks be to God. May I give you a personal illustration of, a, of an interruption? I think it was, gosh, maybe three months ago now, I, I, I got a call from the district superintendent. Over 40 years of pastoral ministry, I had learned to grow very worried about calls from the district superintendent for fear that words were going to come out of his mouth, Marcus, it's the wisdom of the bishop in the cabinet that you should do this, that, or the other. But I had been retired for seven years, I, I'd gotten all over that. I, I could carry on a conversation with the district superintendent with a straight face. <laughs> oh, I, I forgot to tell you, for five of those 40 years, I was a district superintendent and, <laughs> and other people worried about getting calls from me. Ask Tommy Martin. <laughs> well, it wasn't just me having retirement interrupted. Creed Henshaw went out of his way. Creed Henshaw went above and beyond for four months last year. And Tommy, bless his heart, he never did get to retire. <laughs> Two weeks ago, he, he was doing Haddock and Sunshine. And during that time, we were down here saying, Tommy, get downtown and let's figure out what we are going to do but it was our calling to, to become this pastoral team. But we're, we're not the only ones dealing with interruptions here. I mean, y'all, X number of years ago, y'all had been sailing through on a smooth sea with 12 years of a, of a loved and respected uh, pastor. And, and when that came to an end, you didn't know you were gonna have 11 different preachers in 12, in 12 years. I shouldn't have said that. Some of you are going to spend the rest of the time counting up. <laughs> and I'm not sure I got it right. You, you've had interruptions. You've had storms come around your church. 
And as, as Creed said so beautifully last Sunday from this pulpit, quoting St. Paul, a wide door has been opened for work and there are many adversaries. The young people at the Methodist Children's Home uh, here in Macon and other places around South Georgia are not where they are because their life has been calm and uninterrupted. They are there because some kind of trauma has afflicted them. And so I was interested a couple of weeks ago when, when they published words from one of their graduating seniors. And let me say that the, the Children's Home has a tremendous record of graduating their seniors on time. And this young woman, I don't know her story. It's confidential. I can't know her story, but I know, I know there's a story or else she wouldn't have been there. And she said, you can't let the past destroy you. You have to keep going. You have to keep going. You have to learn from the past or let it destroy you. Bruce Larson told a story, had a point about, uh, suppose you're walking on the beach. It's a wonderful uh, day until you step on a broken bottle and your foot begins to bleed and you don't want to give up on the beautiful walk on the beach, but the pain comes to you. Nobody likes pain. Nobody seeks out pain. Certainly hope you don't seek out pain. And, but, but the pain is, is a signal to you to stop what you're doing. To, it interrupts what you're doing so that you can tend to what you need to be doing. Some of you remember Tom and Tommy Griffith, uh, me uh, wonderful members of this church when I was associate here. Just before uh, I, I left in 78, Tommy gave me a copy of Henry Nowen's Reaching Out. And in recent years, I've learned the story behind something he said in that book. Henry Nowen was a professor at Notre Dame. The fact that I always pull against the Notre Dame football team does not mean that I do not respect Notre Dame as a wonderful in, uh, educational institution and that I recognize that anyone who's on the faculty of Notre Dame has an important and a prestigious position. Henry Nowen, who was a contemplative by, by nature, was frustrated by all the interruptions to his schedule. He couldn't do what he needed to do because all these people were interrupting him. And he said, I became so frustrated by the interruptions until I realized that the interruptions were my work. So what are we to do? May I suggest that the interruptions in our lives may open us to God's call? May I suggest that the problems that confront us may be like Larson's bleeding foot? May I suggest that in the tumult that surrounds us, a tumult like that of a fearful father and, and a critically ill girl and a woman desperate for a chance at life, may I suggest that in that kind of earthquake, wind, and fire, we might even dare to listen for a still small voice? Should we plan? Of course we should. Should we plan our work? Of course, of course we should. If we don't have a sense of where we're going, we're never going to get anywhere worth, worth going. But, but life has a way of happening when we make those other plans. Leonard Sweet uh, heard years ago tell about being asked to speak at a conference on long-range planning. 
he was supposed to be the second speaker. They gathered for the first session and they discovered that the first speaker had canceled. He wasn't coming. They said, don't worry. We have videotapes of him speaking on this set. We're going to show the videotapes. Then the projector blew a fuse. They said, don't worry. One man stood up and said, I heard him speak on this topic last year. I have very complete notes on what he, on what he did. I'm going to go back to my hotel room and bring the notes, and I'm going to recreate the message. For <sighs> and Leonard Sweet got up and said, you could not have planned a better opening session for a conference on long-range planning than this. <laughs> Life is what happens when you've made other plans. Because sometimes the burdens that we bear, the, sometimes the interruptions that we carry on through are indeed burdens. And as one of my professors in seminary said, they are burdens like, like wings are to a bird or sails are to a ship. We will learn if we learn to listen. Now, you may object. I'd usually do this when I read this story again for the first time uh, in, in a while. You, you may object. Well, of course Jesus was calm. He, he knew how it was going to come out. He knew that he had the power of God. And the next thing I'm going to say, I say very hesitantly because I have to convince myself to say it. If you say Jesus had the power of God at his disposal... I'm going to say, we are the church of God, and we have the power of God at our disposal. And if we don't believe that, we dare not set off on this journey. There is a balm, better than one in Gilead. There is the balm of God's Spirit working within us, opening our minds, healing our hearts, we cannot heal with the touch of our hand or with a word that we speak. But we do have the power of God beneath us. So let us. Let us speak words of grace. Let us do deeds of power. Mark tells us about three people who were beyond all human help. They are desperate. But Jesus does not despise their desperation because they offer it with hope and their own action. If and when we reach the end of our rope, Jesus is there to say, go in my name, go in peace. May we pray. Lord Jesus, who spoke peace to the winds and to the waves and to the, and to the tumultuous hearts of those who, who, who suffered illness and death. We ask that you would guide us in difficult days and in good days that we might follow you into your kingdom. In your own name we pray. Amen.